Join me on my hunt as we travel in search of stories through the wind door. This journey has been long anticipated, and we are ready. topic we nibbled around the edges of this a little bit earlier but one of the intriguing telling moments was seeing the conversation with Durga tribe from Hakka's perspective because given everything that we talked about before in terms of how we felt about that whole conversation and that we discounted the, the brother and sister leaders. We didn't, even though the text said, hey, these are the twin chieftains of the tribe, it somehow completely escaped us that they were, in fact, chieftains because Hakka seemed to be running the show. And now we see, from Hakka's perspective, he views himself as being not in control at all because he sees his own goals as being completely clear and other people are not immediately coming into lockstep with him. Maybe he does get what he wants and that's what made that moment feel to us the way it did, that he basically is able to steamroll everybody and be the sole leader of this. But he himself feels like, okay, I I have to compromise in order to get what I want done, even though it doesn't feel like a compromise to us. I think his feelings towards the difficulty of the situation is more to do with how certain he feels in his conviction that this is the right thing to do. The combination of his knowledge of the demons that has been passed out between shamans and his recent prophetic dream which intensified the resolve of the promise he made all those years ago to slay one of these demons the moment he would see it, makes this reaction a, holy shit, kill this thing with fire, it represents utter calamity for us, what do you mean we should talk about this? Are you actually for real right now? That's the energy I get from his recollection of these events. It's like Shepard trying to convince the Council to take action against the threat of the Reapers, In Harker's mind, he knows that Miguel is a threat. He does not doubt this, does not question it until the end of the book. It's more or less a fact in his mind. So putting it up for debate is not just a case of, okay, I need to convince the rest of the tribe. It's barely restrained sheer indignation that it's even up for debate in the first place. Mm. Because... I mean, because of our familiarity with Miguel and his species, we have enough knowledge to know that his certainty is misplaced. And yet, I can't say I don't get the frustration. Think about it this way. Why have we had to even argue that Trump is anything other than a cancer we've suffered for far too long and needs to be excised immediately? Why the fuck is the necessity of masks in a pandemic even up for question. Hucker feels that sure about Miguel, and 
any action or discussion entertaining the concept of not killing him seems utterly misguided and incomprehensible to him. And any re- resistance to the action he sees as 100% necessary and urgent feels like a hurdle he shouldn't have to overcome in the first place. Uh, that that opens up a really large box there in yeah. that we're suddenly comparing his reaction to Miguel it's... as being on the same level. Like, I understand why you made the analogy you did, and it is... They are not comparable, no. I suppose. Uh, it's more that, like, I'm trying to understand where Hako is coming from and think about how, for me, like, that kind of... I think that it helps me to understand why he feels as frustrated as he does, but it does not make his conclusions anywhere near as sort of applicable to what we are experiencing in this year, which a time of recording is very nearly over. It's so close. It's so close. You can almost taste it. Yeah. These were our hopes back when this was recorded prior to January 20th. At time of editing, though, Trump has avoided consequences yet again, thanks to failure to impeach. So while he may not be in power, he himself is unfortunately still a clear threat. I still argue that Hawke's situation is not the same as ours, since we had plenty of evidence that Trump was going to be a problem before he was elected. Even though we didn't know how bad it would get, there was evidence that it could still get bad. Haka's evidence is far thinner, but his world is also much smaller, with fewer resources to call upon. But let us return to the discussion that we had back then, for now. It is true that Haka does have information that the rest of the tribe doesn't have, and that's part of why using it as an analogy rather than using it just as an explanation to explain why Haka feels the way he does, there's a greater complexity going on there. There's a greater complexity behind why it is that people are responding the way they do towards fascism or Mm. calamities of various kinds. And that's, that's far too large a conversation for us to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Having said that, it is a conversation that will come up later down the line, because this is not the first time that we will see someone react harshly to what they perceive as a calamitous threat. Someone far more sympathetic, someone that has lots of evidence to hand as to how things could turn out if not addressed. In the case of Haka, the situation is framed very differently, and his story comes back to us now at the end to give us context so that we're sympathetic to his journey. For those of you that haven't read the other books of New Century, you'll have to imagine what it's like on the other foot, when we have a clear protagonist having these kinds of conflicts with other protagonists. Indeed, you already got a little taste of it back in Secret Rooms, where Annie encouraged Abigail towards empathy in regards to other humans, and Frank had to talk James down when the doctor claimed they might not be treating the Wendigo with empathy. 
So keep all of that in the back of your mind when we move on to Arlington and other future books. At the very least, the problem here is that Haka has come to these conclusions completely within his own mind. It's not a result of any kind of discourse with anybody else. He talked about this once with Brask a very long time ago, and then these stories about humanity are not are not shared with any other members of the tribe. So it's not something that where people can have reasoned debate about, okay, what do these things actually mean? Whereas the elements of how Trump came to power and how certain beliefs centering around privilege and everything like that, how all of those came to power, that's a result of a lot of people deconstructing and dissecting and understanding what is behind this and can, in theory, be laid out for others to understand, and it can therefore become frustrating when other people refuse to engage with the information. Mm -hmm. That's the difference here, is that the tribe wants to engage with the information and Haka isn't giving them enough information. He says, this is how that is. He doesn't try to explain how it is other than this is what the spirits want. And if you are good cats, then you should do what the spirits want. This is, to a certain extent, Haka making himself into judge, jury, and executioner. So He's not judge, judy, and executioner. <laughs> and I suspect, although I don't know, that because we have the understanding that some of this stuff is tied up in Haka's response to Harau as much as the revelation of Miguel himself. Mm. The tribe may sense some of that as well. Like they know some of what is going on as a part of this community anyway. They understand that Haka and Hrau are not in a relationship anymore. She moved out to live by herself and it very likely stems from the loss of Coral, even if they aren't necessarily able to have a conversation with their shaman and Hrau about this because Hrau refuses to engage and Haka refuses to engage. But mm. when they see Haka responding to all of this with such intensity, it may not be impossible for them to wonder why is he going so hard on this? Is he not thinking clearly because Rao is involved? Hmm. We can't necessarily know one way or the other if any of that is true, but hmm. it is something that could be going on in their heads, and Haka himself may not be able to see that. He sees the purity in his own actions and doesn't necessarily consider how he might be coming off to other people. 
Yes. So there, there, there's that. That's, <laughs> and that now we have more context, and it doesn't lead on to the next topic precisely. But chronologically, at least, the next thing that happens is that Hawker realizes that Hrau has absconded with Miguel. And he, therefore, needs to leave the tribe in order to ensure that Miguel is killed, which means that he has to leave someone in charge of the spiritual well-being of the tribe, which is why the next topic on the list is, in fact, Lerum, which is his student. And when I brought the room up as a subject, I was expressing confusion as to why Haka chose the room as his apprentice. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike the stuff that happens between Haka and Brask, we don't see the ins and outs of how Haka is a teacher, though clearly he would teach from his perspective which means with lessons colored by his biases. Mm. But he's not challenged by Lerum in the same way that Haka challenged Brask. We see only the characterization that Lerum appears to be good at shamanic practices and magic and has an even temper and calmness. And Haka seems to trust that in him maybe it dovetails with his idea of, you know, that he picked two wives that would accept him for who he is and not challenge him. Therefore, because the room doesn't challenge him either, he decides, okay, that this is a good decision for who is going to be my replacement. But it doesn't seem clear that he has good rapport with his student Especially when he admits to himself, I do not understand this cat. So why, yeah. why pick him? Well, I think that Lerum and how Haka sees him could be best sum up, summed up as Haka sees Lerum as diligent enough that it just, like, he's dedicated, but, you know, he, he's dedicated enough, but like to the extent that he doesn't necessarily push hard enough that he ends up pushing against his teacher in the same way that Haka was so like into learning everything that he ended up kind of challenging his teacher so that he could almost obtain a deeper knowledge or see if he kind of understood it beyond what his teacher was telling him to a certain extent that that's not what Hacker wants as we've said that he like despite his initial th feelings that Frau would make a good mate because she would challenge him that didn't actually in practice seem to be something that worked for Hacker and so on the one level I don't think he would necessarily want that for a student but at the same time I don't think he develops a rapport because he doesn't have that same intensity that Haka has. Mm. But as for why he necessarily chooses him, here's my question. Just how many candidates would he realistically have for a student apprentice mm. or replacement? 
from what I can tell, we don't necessarily have a full census or a headcount of Durga mm. Village, so I can't necessarily provide an accurate population estimate from my memory of the book, but someone who shows an expressed interest in studying shamanic practices to the extent that they will dedicate their life to this role is not going to be so easily found among a limited population that Hucker will have them in abundance, or at least not one who he'd consider an ideal replacement or an exact copy of him at a younger age. Mm. So I expect Lerum is comparatively less outspoken and passionate than Hucker, perhaps staying quiet and listening to Hucker a lot more than he ever did to Brask. I think that an attitude and disposition like that would be simultaneously unchallenging, but nevertheless agreeable to Hacker. The room is agreeable, which is, I think, a very sort of lukewarm response to the person who will one day replace you. Yeah. He would certainly respect and connect with someone who was as intensely interested as he was, but I think Hacker does appreciate that dutiful quality to him because Hacker, as much as he claims he wanted this challenge, is satisfied when puzzles are solved, roles are fulfilled and things proceed as they should. I think that as much as on paper Lerum fulfills that criteria, he nevertheless isn't entirely solved in the way that Hacker likes to solve creatures and cats. Mm. And I think that for him, that's why I think he hasn't necessarily fulfilled that criteria yet or completed his journey in the way that Brask seemed to be content that he had completed his journey of find someone better than you. Yeah, and he I doesn't think use those words no. when he leaves the room. He, he appears to have every intent... Like he says, I will return if I can. Um, mm. And if I don't, then it's your responsibility to lead from now on. But there is no expression that when he picked Lerum as a successor, that he necessarily saw something in Lerum that was better than him. Or, you know, considering Lerum's temperament, maybe he did and he's just not willing to admit it. It's it's hard to he, know he, what's going on there. He does say a final word, which is, I chose well with my apprentice, which I think is some sort of final acknowledgement of whatever qualities that he may or may not have been able to figure out exist in the room. He's kind of acknowledging that there is something there. I don't know if he necessarily entirely appreciates the room as a cat and what his inner nature is and what his potential might be but i think he at the very least acknowledges that there is something there and i think that that level of recognition of another cat is a positive sign for hacker i think in terms of how little he actually truly sees other cats mm -hmm. yeah Chronologically, mm -hmm. uh, that then brings us to the confrontation at the Fire Lion Temple. And we get to see now, for the first time, Hakka's 
and the silent ones responses to each other. Now the other side of it that we're seeing that gives context to events that have happened before is that when Crow asked the silent one to ask the spirits what they thought of this matter, what ended up happening was the silent one casting out her mind for answers and what she potentially found along the way was Haka himself. Now we see that this ability that is in each of them that has some similarities with telepathy means that when she made contact, she saw into his mind, but she could not do so without... It being a two-way thing. Yeah, exactly. Without him seeing into her mind as well. And there is actually a moment that happens before then where he is using an animal to spy on Rao and Miguel, and the animal is abruptly killed by the Silent One. We never find out if the Silent One knew that someone, that another shaman was riding the animal, and maybe she did and maybe she didn't. And we also don't necessarily know if what the silent one was actually intending with her, uh, with her display in terms of trying to offer some sort of insight into what the spirits did or didn't think Hrau should do in regards to Miguel. It seems like it might have been an accident, particularly in the rushed way that the silent one responds to, your plan was a good one, you should go do that now. But it means that it it now gives more weight to their interaction and the shortened, yet at the same time, complicated meeting of the minds between the two of them, the two current representations of the spiritual world as we have seen take place in Rama thus far. They look at each other and are willing to engage in combat in order to achieve their own ends or at the very least prevent one from providing complication to the other. But before that ever happens, the Silent One basically faces down Haka with the simple question, you are a good shaman, correct? And it makes us wonder just how much she learned with that contact because it would feel like she wouldn't have necessarily asked that question if she didn't know that it wouldn't resonate in him somehow. Mm-hmm. Your suggestion at the time was that when Haka describes what he finds out, he primarily understands that, oh, okay, the Silent One is present here in the temple, 
and they are also the Gagaku. So therefore, I don't actually need to fear this tale of the Gagaku. It's just her, and she's one old cat. I can surely defeat her in one way or the other. But your assertion as to why she seemed to get so much more from that contact was that she is better at listening. Hmm. And Haka is not good at listening. No. He relies too much on what he sees and what he takes in from his visions to the prophetic artwork to all of this stuff. He takes it that what he sees is all the evidence he needs. And I think that hearing is much more about being a recipient of what is going on around you, whereas seeing is almost like he is actively establishing an interpretation of those around him. And the silent one does not see. She has she has to listen oh no no no, no. I, I got it completely wrong uh that is the complete opposite of it so <laughs> apologies for that uh she well that's it that's it is that okay so scrap that terrible terrible interpretation just there uh but that it is remarkable that she is as good at listening to others when she cannot hear that she has developed this ability to actually kind of build up a profile of people just by interacting with them and not even necessarily getting the full picture. Haka has more of his senses to work with and yet he is falling short. And Brask, the thing that I keep coming back to is when he is literally beating it into him and saying, you're not listening. Mm, like, mm. That is his fundamental flaw, is that he is not listening to the world around him. Toby got a little jumbled in there, but I decided not to edit it out and instead to try and clarify a little bit what he was trying to suggest. In very broad strokes, the act of seeing is taking in data from the world, and the brain coming up with an interpretation that explains that data. It therefore comes entirely from within that brain and requires no input from anyone else. Someone else can provide input, especially if the seer can communicate with someone else can ask their opinion. But by itself, seeing is purely internal. Input that comes in from the ears can be treated the same way, and one might describe that as hearing. Listening, however, implies more than data input. It requires communication. It's about attempting to derive meaning from sound that the sound itself is trying to communicate. And that could be speech, but it could also be song or animal calls or some other kind of communication. It is being open to interpretation by another, rather than just interpretation within oneself. Indeed, even if we are merely reading the text of Tiger's Eye rather than listening to the audio drama, the act that Toby and I are doing is listening to the text, and then listening to each other as our brains derive meaning from it. It just so happens that when we listen to the audio drama, 
there is even more meaning that can be derived from the communication, giving us additional avenues to glean meaning through music and sound and performance. The definition of listening that I would argue is relevant in this case is the idea of being open to information even if it conflicts with your already established beliefs. Yes. That's what listening means here, and that's yeah. that's what she is capable of, and that Haka right now is not. Mm-hmm. He is not letting new information into mm-hmm. his head in such a way that he is willing to admit that he is mm-hmm. wrong about something. Haka is not receptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good uh, word to use, receptive. It is only now during the editing process that certain other thoughts come to mind about why it is that the Silent One is so much better at listening than Haka. And it may well be that she learned how because she needed to. There is evidence that the other senses become stronger when you lose one of them, because you need to compensate for what you have lost. This is just one of the things that the brain does. But to a hunter-gatherer society, one would ask why the Silent One would leave the safety of the group without such an important sense as hearing. I would suggest that something beyond her physical senses has risen to replace it. The same extrasensory power that allows Haka to control the minds of animals, and allows her mind to make contact with his. She still needs to hunt to survive, and I suspect that she may use her mental powers to replace her inability to hear with her ears. Having said that, it makes one wonder just how much information is she able to get with this power? Did she in fact know that the animal was being ridden by Haka and that's why she killed it? Did she already know much of what was in Rao's mind and that was why the Silent One let her and Miguel approach? Was the drawn-out signing all for Frau's benefit, or was it also important because Miguel's mind was alien to her, and was therefore needed to help him communicate his intent, as well as facilitate communication between Frau and Miguel? And now that I've thrown all that at you, let me further bake your noodle. We don't know all the abilities that the Silent One can lay claim to, aside from this extrasensory perception. But if we assume that she only has that one, then her communion with the spirits was always her intention to seek and find Haka's mind. Because both of them are trained, he could feel her contact. That was unavoidable. But it was needful for her to understand what drove Haka, and was therefore worth whatever insight she lost to him. Maybe she could even control what he got. Maybe. Her urgency in regards to getting Crow out of there was all staged. She wanted Crow and Miguel to leave, specifically to draw Haka in and have a conversation. Use the knowledge that she gained to pierce through his assumptions and try to get him to consider he was in the wrong. That he was being motivated by something other than duty to the tribe because he would know that she had seen into his mind, that she knew him, his doubts, his anger, his fear. He would not be able to perform for her as easily as he did for Durga Tribe.
If the Silent One is that powerful, it could even explain why she lives alone. That maybe like it is for some telepaths, it's hard to shut out the minds of others around her, and therefore living near non-sapient beings is easier. This is all supposition, mind, but it would not be above consideration, especially when one takes into account how much we know our creators love the X-Men. This brings us to the final moments of chapter 23. When you um, first listened to this, I don't remember now, were you listening to it as it first came out, or were you taking it, were you you, you binging it? I I was binging it. I was going through the series around the point that... uh, Princess Thieves was releasing episodically, ah, so okay. uh, at this point it existed as a complete audio book. But at that point, I really was not sure what Hacker, how that situation had resolved. I mm-hmm. genuinely thought that it was possible that we, like, it was now being revealed to the reader that the silent one had in fact been killed, and that. Hacker had maybe gone much further down this dark path than we perhaps were aware of. Yeah, that final line, I look back upon this moment now with shame, is very open to... Yeah, exactly. And I have to imagine that when it was first released to patrons or or put out on the weekly or however frequently he was putting it out on the new century podcast feed that that having to sit with that as a potential outcome cliffhanger yeah yeah that you know one can't help but wonder did the two of them come to physical conflict and as the next chapter follows up on it's never referred to so we don't know until the end that, in fact, the two of them did not come to physical conflict. The Silent One did, in fact, do what she said she would in her final interchange with Rao, which is go to Durga tribe in order to provide whatever further wisdom or assistance she could in the absence of Hakka and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And that's what lends weight to the resolution of Hakka's story. But we'll get to that eventually. The question here is now, the line is presented in such a way to provide ambiguity, but since we know that the shame does not come from Haka crossing a moral threshold, what is the shame that he refers to here? Is it the fact that he could not provide an honest answer to her? Because it it would seem to hinge around the question she asks him. Mm. I think that might be it. I think that, you know, if we were being unfavorable to Haka, it could be that the fact that he did not kill her when she stood in his way, he felt shame because he showed a weakness of resolve. But uh, I'm not sure I buy that, or I'm convinced of that interpretation. I think that it's more likely that Hacker was a lot more shaken by her question than he expresses to the reader, because, as you say, I don't know if he 
provides an answer to her or is capable of providing an answer to himself, is he a good shaman? Because as he has gotten older, that question has been harder to answer when he was just a cub sharing stories with passion and accuracy. That was an easy thing to answer that he was a good storyteller, but he's had a lifetime of experience and now he has to ask himself if he really can answer that question. I think that look at him looking within was the first step to him making that realization he reaches at the very end of the book. That realization he eventually reaches is a positive step, but it is also steeped in so much regret at the cat he has been and shame for how he has behaved and treated others. So I think I interpret the shame he feels when he looks back at this moment with the silent one as a combination of regretting the momentary drop in his resolve to continue his mission and a more uncertain shame he doesn't quite understand yet himself, which is a prelude to what he experiences at the end of the book. I think that this is probably a good place for us to end I was today. about to say the same. This was a good <laughs> session. <laughs> this was a great session. Here is the place where our original second Skype conversation ended, which means in order to round out this episode, I am stitching in part of the final Skype conversation so that we get some smaller episodes that are easier to manage overall. So enjoy this brief interlude as I take us into our thoughts on the events of Chapter 24 in the novel. When we get into chapter 24, we start off with Haka continuing to chase after Crow and Miguel, his perspective of how things played out with the whole taking over animals in order to try and get Miguel that way, and then his meeting with the traders, and then his experience being in the whale. It all just sort of comes fast and furious because we don't need to cover every little bit of what's happened. We know what's happened. We just need to get the overall sense of Haka's reaction to all of this. And we see the building anger in him and the way that anger colors his actions foolishly in regards to not taking up Prow's cause or seeing the need to view all the other cats as family, not just Durga, but also the anger in him that is still somehow on Hrao's side, in spite of the fact that he seemed willing to kill her back in Yamaya City. He still blames Miguel overall, wrongly, but he blames Miguel for everything that's happened. He needs somewhere for his anger to go, and Miguel is the easy target. He needs mm-hmm. to hate, or there is nothing to protect him from helplessness and despair. Haka uses his anger to shield all else from him, even reason, much the way that 
Crow used her hunting duty to protect her own mind from the feelings of guilt and shame. And, you know, in a way, that's... When I was writing all of this down, it seemed to me a natural parallel, but the thing that one could consider is that there is a parallel in terms of the emotional arc of some of this due to the fact that Haka has not addressed his own feelings yet about having lost Karal. When he talks about it, he is deliberately or did deliberately try to place himself above it and not take care of his own feelings, something we discussed a little bit beforehand. But as the resolution that he desires keeps being denied him, it feels more and more like the control that he ostensibly was able to maintain all this time immediately after Coral's disappearance, the stress of what's going on is wearing away at him. Therefore, we get an insight now through Haka relating his experiences why it is that he seemed so not out of control necessarily in all of our experiences with him through Rao, but relentless. Yes, exactly. Mm. We we get insight into the pressures and the driving force behind all of his behavior up to mm. Something that you said a moment ago stood out to me, which is that the hate that he is focusing on Miguel is driving him, but it's wearing away at him. Mm. And I think that that is such a truth, and it's the key difference to what, like, as much as Hrau and Haka are similar in that they are displacing their own unconfronted grief for their child and it's manifesting in these I must do this other thing which on paper feels completely unrelated and is me doing the best to move on or at least not think about this when really it is part and parcel with it and but the key difference is that what Crow is being driven by it's not hate that drives her. It is, at first, a love and a desire for her village to be safe, that she thinks the best thing for this is she doesn't hate Miguel, she can't kill him, but she wants her village to be safe and she wants him to be returned home and there is at least a compassion towards him that she maybe doesn't quite fully understand or appreciate at the beginning of the book. All of that is a positive force and that just grows and develops until it becomes a genuine and acknowledged love for Miguel that wants the best for him. Mm-hmm. And for Haka, what's driving him is hate. That is what is fueling everything he does. And that is not sustainable. It's not something that you can renew without taking a toll on yourself it's self-destructive exactly it's it just it tears away at you because you 
have to the longer you go on with that being the thing that's driving you the longer it makes you feel blind to anything else whereas i think frau is motivated by positive compassion and a desire to protect and that only evolves and develops it because she is there is an openness to it whereas i think hucker the thing with hate is that it's addictive mm. and it is so harmful i think that miguel is where he displaces his own frustrations at his past mistakes and the things he can't control his anger is brought in this far so he has to hold on to it because miguel is the destination it's that hate you rely on it but you also desperately want to be rid of it and so you think that the only way to combat that to get rid of it the antidote is to see it through when that's not at all what it is he thinks that miguel is the destination and the point of his journey that has essentially become his spirit walk the funny thing is in a sense he's right miguel is where he fulfills his journey and undergoes a positive change but it's not in the way that he anticipates yeah P- people mm. will have read the chapters by now so they know what we're talking about but it's mm. that we address that we that stay in the moment. moment yeah exactly yeah. and we address that moment when we come to it i would add a couple of things to what you just said first of all that hate is easy to a certain mm-hmm. extent it's part of the reason why we have the whole light side dark side motif whenever we're discussing things like star wars, star wars. well star wars is the is the is the obvious thing to go to but uh, because it's also a place where a lot of those tropes and emotional ideas are used the heaviest i'm not going to follow that through line particularly because like it has its own issues with it everything like that the thing that i want to focus on is that in haka's case what has built up inside him as you were saying a moment ago he needs to exhale mm. everything has been sort of building up in him for a very long time I wouldn't say necessarily since he took on the demands and pressure of being the shaman and having to figure out all of that himself although I do have I think a greater appreciation now for some of the internal struggles that he may have had as a result of that thanks to listening to Spencer talk a little bit about what he thought when he was trying to inhabit Hakka's brain space that he himself didn't necessarily feel like he was ready even if he tried to convince himself that he was but it's definitely at the very least been building up since the loss of Coral and as he finds himself unable to bring any kind of meaningful resolution to Hrau, he at the very least manages to convince her to 
continue on, but he doesn't come to a resolution with his feelings about all of this. And then he has the prophetic dream. And then the presence of Miguel is just sort of like this now enormous boulder that he has to carry. And his immediate response is to like, we need to get rid of it now. This is a threat, but the longer it weighs on him and the more it gets tangled up with his unresolved feelings regarding Hrau, he needs the energy to come from somewhere in order to be able to deal with this. He needs to eventually lay this burden down. But because the issue with Miguel can't be resolved to his satisfaction, then that is part of why he is beginning to lose control of his emotions, I think. You know, just like with the experience of the audience while we're watching all of this stuff going on about how there are dramatic peaks and then it needs to settle back down into quieter moments in order for us to take in everything that's going on rather than being kept at a high level of excitement and tension and fear and anticipation and everything like that. Haka is being burned out, I think, a little bit by all of this. And hmm. we see that all the more as things proceed with his experience on the whale. And then again, later on, when we start talking about his conversations and relationships with the other Aboriginal cats going forward, he is finding it difficult to muster up the ability to care about anything except for this one path that he set himself upon. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I would go back and argue that in terms of, like, we've already discussed some of this in great detail, but Harau's experience with how she begins her story is... Yes, there are elements of compassion there, but it's also that the presence of Miguel has sort of woken herself back up a little bit and reminded her who she is. These are all, to her, muscles that she hasn't exercised in a very long time. And mm -hmm. like Haka, she has duty to her tribe, to her family. I would argue that based on what we've seen, that she doesn't necessarily feel positively about any of that herself. She is sort of more in a neutral place when the story begins, and she's doing it out of a sense of responsibility, but not necessarily out of a feeling of she is happy that she is doing something for her tribe. It mm -hmm. is only this is the task that she has set herself to, and she at the very least has become acclimated to it. It's not She doesn't have to renew from a dark place in order to keep doing it, but mm -hmm. she has taken the emotional component out of it to a certain degree. She has attempted not to feel about anything as opposed to Haka, who is trying to maintain a specific emotional intensity, and that's why he burns out as quickly as he does, 
and she burns out more slowly. She is putting physical energy into what she does, but she is not burning the same amount of emotional intensity until mm-hmm. Miguel starts entering the picture. Mm-hmm. But in that case, Haka is still alone, and he doesn't have anyone present that can help him with the emotional labor of dealing with what is going on. Krau has Miguel. Mm. And even as events cause stress on the two of them, they are able to look out for each other emotionally in ways. And as the story proceeds, Krau uses what she relearned from Miguel and is further able to work on some of the emotional labor with Dr. Shira or with Opali or with Chieftain Shala. She manages connections and is able to talk with them in order to figure out the emotional work of everything that's going on in there, and Haka still has no one. Put a little more simply, Hrau had a reason to keep going despite her despair, but it did not nourish her. Miguel nourished her in a way that had not happened since Corral, and she was able to build on that to cultivate even more renewable resources in relationships with others. Haka's hate, however, was not a seed he could use to do the same. Yeah, I think that when you were talking about how Hrau is in a neutral space as opposed to necessarily a positive space, where it made me think of how if we're looking at this scale of a sort of abstract negativity, neutrality, and positivity, then the person who kind of occupies the positivity there, to me, feels like it might be Miguel. Mm. And the thing with all three of these people is that they aren't entirely what they embody on that scale. All of them Mm. are capable of understanding and experiencing moments away from it, and not just in big character development moments. Haka, even at his most antagonistic, is compassionate at Mm. times. Like, he holds off when Hrau holds the spears to her throat. He is talking with Hrau and is even voicing his intentions or his hopes that she will be happy. No one ever wholly occupies one space. The problem is that they struggle to move they feel entrenched and they feel like they can only move so far away from it. And Miguel, in his positioning on the positive space, it feels like he is there by default and that he is an innocent. He is a young child who is capable of laughter and enjoying the journey in the early stages of the book. But he has been forced to confront hard things already. He has already had to be confronted with things that will turn him away from that. And I'm aware that while I'm talking about this scale of negativity to positivity, I'm not necessarily pinning down what those 
are in a sort of very light side, dark side <laughs> sense that I keep yeah. on referring to it without like actually saying it. If I could articulate it, I would say that it is a willingness. Here's the thing. As soon as I try to pin it down, I feel like it, the terms don't necessarily apply wholly, but mm-hmm. I will start by saying that it's a willingness to look towards and communicate with others with Haka being completely away from it and that feeding his negative impulses uh, Frau neither begrudging other people's opinions nor seeking them out and therefore being in this neutral space and Miguel he's constantly reaching out to people yes uh, that's probably the best I can put it. There's also mm. more nebulous, like sort of innocence and hate and compassion and all of that. But I think if this book is about communication, then let's lean into it. Let's say that someone is lost when they cut off all avenues of compassion and communication with other people. Mm. You want to see who someone who wholly embodies the negative side of the scale look to Mohawk and Mm. you want to see someone on extreme positive side I can't necessarily say that because I was going to say the silent one but she very deliberately goes off she's a she is a paradox because she seeks solitude but is very good at actually helping people to open up to one another well Home. Sorry, you just made my brain freeze up there for a moment. You're absolutely right in that she would appear to be in a form of stasis herself, that the presence of Miguel and Hrau break her out of back Mm. when that first happens. And we don't know the circumstances that led her to be where she is. We know a little bit of her story based on what she said as to why she came here. And it would be intriguing if my supposition was correct, that she sought solitude because of the growing power of her telepathy. When we finally see what actually came after Haka's confrontation with her, in the Temple of the Fire Lion, we see that she did in fact do what Hrau asked of her and join Durga tribe. And it feels like, especially since she can then be a mentor to Haka, as well as potentially others, as well as the entire tribe, it may hopefully be a positive net gain for her as well to re-enter the world. That she has re-entered the world the way Krau has re-entered the world in some way. All of this is just making me realize, and (laughs) I think I (laughs) knew this, but couldn't necessarily articulate it. And it feels so obvious, because it feels like just writing one-on-one, or just the building blocks of this story, if you cut out all of the detail. But it really is the case that Miguel does embody this, Miguel is a catalyst for change. Mm, mm. He is the one who, you know, sets Frau on this journey. 
his encounter with the silent one like stirs her out of stasis he is fundamental to like he is also stirring haka into his journey he helps the captive cats he helps change their mission to fight for their freedom he does not give them their freedom in terms of they were already planning to fight but he provides something that gives them a much more positive chance and also just stirs something in that and that in turn creates change within Albion in terms of there's a big trial and it seems like as much as Albion was already thinking of having this big effort to send ships across the sea to the western continent that it feels like maybe the rebellion on the stalwart whale maybe stirred things up it was a catalyst for them to say right we need to actually take this like more seriously i think that this will be on the cutting room floor but i'll say it anyway what follows is technically a spoiler but toby's emotional content and personal insight into this future moment from steamheart is just too good to lose to the editing floor so i'll put in a little bumper music and you can fast forward to timestamp 1 hour, 3 minutes, 0 seconds. What's I think makes me realize how much of a scumbag Miguel's father is, is that when we actually see him in Steamheart, Despite the fact that he's taken on a new family, he has not changed. That Miguel himself has uh, like experienced changes for himself. He's brought all these changes to other people, and yet he, when he comes back, just sees his father, and he kind of realizes, I've seen people do so much. I've seen a tiger who wanted to kill me go through a fundamental change, but I know that my own father will never ever go through that change for me this person who's meant to love me fuck i i had just realized just how like miguel that reaction of just holy shit like there's there was my terminator assassin guy he he puts more effort into you know actually seeing me and changing for me than my own dad oh my god Ooh. yeah oh, I, we can't well, put this in i know we got like even in an excerpt i don't know It's going to be a long way off before we can actually talk about Steamheart. But by the same token, I would add that, like, we didn't necessarily know what was going to happen in terms of Miguel meeting with Francisco after the events of Tiger's Eye. We don't expect, I don't think we ever expect much from Francisco as far as any of that is concerned. Miguel may not have understood it himself when he set about doing it, but the book that we are reading establishes that 
he plans to go back to confront his father, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think that he expects something that that a change will come about in his father as a result. He wants to go back and do it for himself. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, he doesn't have to choose aloneness after that because in this story, Harao chooses to go with him and be with him now in this different place, away from everything that she has known, but with the child she has chosen to accept as her own and begin to make a new family with and everything like that. But even if that hadn't happened, I feel certain that Miguel would have found the strength to still walk away from Francisco and Mm -hmm. do the thing that he talks about setting off to do rejoining the RSA and Mm. living up to the promises that he made, even if they were made not in the best faith by Francisco rather than to any true end or anything like that. He needs a purpose and he needs to be himself aggressively so that's the thing that he focuses on. And it just so happens that it matches to dovetail very well with the events of all of the other main characters in Stapeheart. Um, but we should, I, we should probably stop talking about that because yep. this, is now, this is now going to be a little nugget that I may end up sending to Alex or saving for some other point later on. But as you say, really can't be a part of this particular story. Anyway, anyway. Going back, going back to Tigers Exactly. So, yeah, that's why uh, Hako is on the negative side and uh, Miguel is on the positive side. Anyway, moving on. Well, there are different interpretations of what characters are thematically, and in particular what Hrau, Miguel, and Haka are thematically. And again, as you point out, the themes being present are not the be-all, end-all to what they are. It's just a method by which to understand their story representation better, but they are more complicated than that yeah. because they now, are full people in their own right. Yeah, any any readings like this is should not be that these characters are this thing only. It's more like this is one lens of many through which Uh, these characters can be seen. The one other thing that occurred to me when you were talking about Miguel being uh, a force of change for everybody is that, yes, so many things were now set into motion that wouldn't have happened had the wind door not opened up to begin with and had Miguel not fallen through it. There was a fascinating thematic story arc that happened, I want to say, about a decade ago, where John Michael Straczynski of Babylon 5 fame, as well as many, many other things that he's touched along the way, was responsible for writing Spider-Man. And one of the things that he wanted to include was the idea that there was an intersection between the quote-unquote science of the irradiated spider that 
bit Peter Parker and gave him his powers, but also of totemic myth that Spider-Man could be related to the idea of the totemic trickster spider like Anansi. And that was a fairly interesting read, which actually makes a great deal of sense in terms of the fact that he is heroic, but he is a quippy heroic person that is unpredictable and often is able to defeat his opponents not necessarily through sheer strength of power, but through being able to behave unpredictably and think outside the box. He's basically a more um, compassionate, positive version of Deadpool, who has always been sort of more on the anti-hero spectrum rather than on the pure compassion. Deadpool has his own issues with being compassionate and everything like that, and there's different ways that you can read him. Hmm. But I was thinking about it from the perspective of Miguel just being his pure self and how that sets things in motion by being true to who he is and the fact that he eventually dons a mask himself. I wasn't prepared to look at the idea of the mongoose from a mythological perspective. I'm going to have to go back in now and actually think about some of that. But the Wrap idea... Up episode material. <laughs> Just so suddenly think about the idea of Miguel Alejandro Delgado, the mongoose boy. <laughs> Night mongoose monkey. lad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, um... Night Monkey. <laughs> I think we did discuss a little bit of this idea, which is the Windors made possible a great, great many bad things. The presence of the Wendigo and how that really scuttled things in terms of various civilizations and everything like that. And brought, as we will find out, a variety of different things on the other side of the pond in England and everything like that. But... The Windor bringing Miguel into Rama is, in some ways, an unparalleled good. Mm. At least we would certainly hope so, based on the fact that, yes, bad things happened along the way, but it interrupted Prow and Hakka from their various paths. It made it possible for the captives that were taken by... Captain Queensbury and the whale to Leon for them to make the connections that they needed to in order to get back and therefore be further better prepared for the colonizing forces from Albion as things progress into the rest of New Century and in particular Panther Soul. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll see for ourselves how that actually how things develop on in Rama since the end of this story. I'm but, really excited. Yeah, we're all really excited, and, and Alex is still in the middle of writing it, but at the very least he seems to have the writing spark and knows where he wants the story to go, provided that the, uh, the pressure isn't low uh, and causing uh, frustrating migraines and the like. That feels like the right place to stop for today leaving what is currently 1 hour and 23 minutes of content for Part 5 for next week, plus some outtakes from the last four episodes. 
But before we shut it all down, I will do what I said I would in these last moments, and expound a little on the mythology of the mongoose. As it turns out, the mongoose itself is not generally a trickster, even though it physically bears resemblance to the weasel, which often is. But following down the winding path of Wikipedia and the internet, I discovered many things I did not know, such as the fact that the original writing by Rudyard Kipling that Tiger's Eye in part owes homage to was not a single story. The Jungle Book was, in fact, an anthology, and one of the stories was of Ricky Tikitavi, the valiant mongoose that was the pet of an Indian family which protected them from a pair of malicious cobras. This story has been adapted several times, and in at least one case was made a part of the story of Mowgli, the part of the Jungle Book that most people are familiar with thanks to Disney. In this way, the mongoose would seem to be a symbol of loyalty and protection, something that Miguel does try to live up to over the course of the story. But let's face it, New Century is itself a mishmash of many influences, which is as it should be. It's what makes the overall whole so compelling. One of the other things we mentioned in the last few minutes is our excitement for Panther Soul, which has now already been released to Patreons as of 11 days ago. To date, the only one we know that has finished reading it was me, basically 12 hours after it was put out. Toby himself is about a third of the way finished, and it's very likely going to be the next thing we record on, once more interrupting our final episodes on Tiger's Eye. But it's very, very good. And we encourage people to dig in if you can. Right now, both Stone Spring Maidens and Panther Soul are only available to $10 patrons, as Alex wants a chance to tweak them a little further as a part of the process of adapting them to audio drama, before they are sent to Amazon and are basically unchangeable. And as always, he would want to say that the audio dramas are the better product. But if you can't wait to hear how the story of New Century proceeds, you can do so for only a little money, and then you'll also get to hear our raw, unfiltered ideas on these newest two books. The way things are going, we're likely going to have another one of these New Century hot take shows before we get to summer, as Alex is also blazing away writing book 12, Nightfall of the Wendigo. To play us out, a piece of music that I felt had thematic resonance to our discussion of Haka being eaten alive by his hate, by his drive to kill Miguel. It's a song I really like, even though it has dark imagery and it doesn't feel like a song that I can sing without admitting to its overall toxicity. But as I was going over potential notes to end this episode on, the lyrics just spoke to me as thoughts that could all very well be in Haka's own head before the final confrontation with Miguel. I recommend you take a look at the lyrics yourself to see what I see, the words of someone that has nothing left inside but the desire to destroy the thing they hate. And if this feels too dark for you, then by all means skip it. I have something much more positive in mind for the end of Part 5. Until next time, this is Breaking Benjamin with I Will Not Bow.
I'm not.